hello, hello. How's everyone doing? Um, we're back with the midweek, and we're back with me, Brandon. So, um, this is going to be a continuation. Uh, we, we put a vote up, and it seemed like pretty much um, 87% of you said that you wanted to hear more of the manifesto. I don't know how much more I'm going to do on this. Uh, I'm going to do some more at least this week um, and see if, where we get. Um, this is 54 pages long, and last week I got seven pages in. So we will kind of go through, see where I get on this and where we're at, and then we will go from there. Um, we do get into some interesting things here. I've been trying to kind of stay a little bit away from this so that when I come into this and read this, um, it's fresh thoughts and everything else. So we will get right into it and just go for it. Um, before I do, though, I do want to say thank you to all of the listeners for, for listening in. Um, and everything else, we are so close. We are we're right there at that 500 episodes. Make sure if you've emailed in, um, sorry, not 500 episodes, 500,000 listens. We're over 300 episodes. Um, so yeah, make sure to send an email to downtherh at protonmail.com um, to get in on the contest to be able to have a live chat with me and Big D. So. Um, and again, thank you all for listening. Thank you for, for coming back every week. Uh, thank you to Fringe Radio Network for always playing us and, and being huge supporters. Um, yeah, so get a hold of us if you have any questions or anything else or if you want to hear something different um, or if you want me to keep going or you have any comments on you know the, this manifesto or anything else we got going. Um, yeah, uh, down there RH at protonmail.com or you can message me um, on Instagram if you want to go just directly to me we both answer the the proton mail but if you just want to go to me and ask me a question uh, straight up uh, it's mr underscore b underscore 666 on Instagram and that's mr spelled out m-i-s-t-e-r underscore b as in Brandon, and then underscore 666. Um, so yeah, send me a message, whatever. Um, I would love to talk to all of you. Uh, this is this is, this is is fun for me. This has turned into something more than I ever thought it would be. So we will just jump right into this and go for it. Um, I'll go for pretty much as long as I, I feel comfortable, and then we'll see where we're at. But like I said, we're only on page 7 of 54 pages. So here we go. Okay, last week we kind of ended on the whole idea of, you know, serious psychological problems, you know, rate of success for, you know, not having goals and everything else. And we're seeing that a lot more with children and um, the, the recent generations. Um, some of the other things we have here, now we're going to start jumping into, we're on uh, paragraph 38. So, um, and we're just going to start going ahead and reading. But not every leisured aristocrat becomes bored and demoralized. For example, the emperor Hirohito, instead of sinking into decadent hedonism, devoted himself to marine biology, a field in which he became distinguished. When people do not have to exert themselves to satisfy their physical needs, they often set up artificial goals for themselves. In many cases, cases they then pursue these goals with the same energy and emotional involvement, involvement that they otherwise would have put into the search for physical necessities. Thus, the aristocrats of the Roman Empire had their literary pretensions. Many European aristocrats a few centuries ago invested tremendous time and energy into hunting. Though they certainly didn't need the meat, other aristocracies have competed 
for her status through elaborate displays of wealth, and a few aristocrats, like Hirohito, have turned to science. We use the term surrogate activity to designate an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that people set up for themselves merely in order to have some goal to work toward, or let us say merely for the sake of the fulfillment that they get from pursuing the goal. Here's a rule of thumb for the identification of surrogate activities. Given a person who devotes much time and energy to the pursuit of a goal X, ask yourself this. If he had to devote most of his time and energy to satisfying his biological needs, and if that effort required him to use his physical and mental faculties in a varied and interesting way, would he feel seriously deprived because he did not attain goal X? If the answer is no, then the person's pursuit of goal X is a surrogate activity. Hirohito's studies in marine biology clearly constituted a surrogate activity, since it is pretty certain that if Hirohito had had to spend his time working at um, interesting non-scientific tasks in order to obtain the necessities of life, he would not have felt deprived because he did not know all about the anatomy and life cycles of marine animals. On the other hand, the pursuit of sex and love, for example, is not a surrogate activity, because most people, even if their existence were otherwise satisfactory, would feel deprived if they passed their lives without ever having a relationship with a member of the opposite sex. But pursuit of an excessive amount of sex, more than one really needs, can be a surrogate activity. Very interesting thoughts there. I mean, it's one of those things, if you look at most of the activities that we have, there's a lot of surrogate activities, I would think. Um, and things that we all do. Um, yeah, I mean, video games, surrogate activity. Even me, I mean, I'm a runner. I run, I, I do exercise. Um, just this last weekend, I did uh, what's called the Ragnar Run. 200, you know, 200 miles with a group of 12 of a, a re, you know, a relay. Why? Because I wanted to and I was bored. Because uh, I didn't have anything else to do. So it really is a surrogate activity. I mean, in a way it is, but I would think that also it is for my health. If it wasn't for the running and doing all that, um, my health would be a lot worse than it is. Very interesting ideas. But if you really think about a lot of things in life that we do um, now because of everything that's handed to us, because of society and everything else, um, there are many things that we do that are surrogate activities. Honestly, this podcast could be argued is a surrogate activity. All right, back to the reading. In modern industrial society, only minimal effort is necessary to satisfy one's physical needs. It is enough to go through a training program to acquire some petty technical skill, then come to work on time and exert the very modest effort needed to hold the job. The only requirements are a moderate amount of intelligence and, most of all, simple obedience. All capitalized. Obedience. If one has those, society takes care of one from cradle to grave. Yes, there's an underclass that cannot take the physical necessities for granted, but we are speaking here of mainstream society. Thus, it is not surprising that modern society is full of surrogate activities. These include scientific work, athletic achievement, humanitarian work, artistic and literary creation, climbing the corporate ladder, acquisition of money and material goods far beyond the point at which they cease to give any additional physical satisfaction, and social activism when it addresses issues that are not important for the activist personally, as in the case of white activists who work for the rights of non-white minorities. These are not always pure surrogate activities, since for many people, they may be motivated in part by needs other than the need to have some goal to pursue. 
Scientific work may be motivated in part by a drive for prestige, artistic creation, by a need of expressed feelings, militant social activism, by hostility, but for the most people who pursue them, these activities are in large part surrogate activities. For example, the majority of scientists will probably agree that the fulfillment they get from their work is more important than the money and prestige they earn. So it's kind of gluttony. It's one of those things, if you really think about it, it's a lot of, you know, religion um, talks about gluttony and having more than we need. Um, and I, I think that is huge, especially in our society. In 95, it, it was kind of there. But now, I mean, look at, you know, now, look at some of the people that we have. You have Musk. You have, you know, Bill Gates. You have, you know... Mark Zuckerberg, you have all these people that have all this way more money than they'd ever need. And yet they still want more. You know, yes, they do philanthropic work, but we've talked about that. The philanthropic work is just to make it look like they, you know, to them, it's like what would be spending 20 bucks to us. They give all this money, but they're really not giving that much. Um, Yeah. All right, back to the reading. 41. Uh, paragraph 41. For many, if not most people, surrogate activities are less satisfying than the pursuit of real goals. That is, goals that people would want to attain even if their need for the power process were already fulfilled. One indication of this is the fact that in many or most cases, people who are deeply involved in surrogate activities are never satisfied, never at rest. Thus, the moneymaker constantly strives for more and more wealth. The scientist no sooner solves one problem than he moves on to the next. The long-distance runner drives himself to run always farther and faster. Many people who pursue surrogate activities will say that they get far more fulfillment from these activities than they do from their mundane business of satisfying their biological needs. But that is because in our society, the effort needed to satisfy the biological needs has been reduced to triviality. More importantly, in our society, people do not satisfy their biological needs autonomously, but by functioning as parts of an immense social machine. In contrast, people generally have a great deal of autonomy in pursuing their surrogate activities. Autonomy as part of the power process may not be necessary for every individual, but most people need a greater or lesser degree of autonomy in working toward their goals. Their efforts must be undertaken on their own initiative and must be under their own direction and control. Yet most people do not have to exert this initiative, direction, and control as single individuals. It is usually enough to act as a member of a small group. Thus, if half a dozen people discuss a goal among themselves and make a successful joint effort to attain that goal, their need for the power process will be served. But if they work under rigid orders, handed down from above, they leave them no room for autonomous decision and initiative then their need for the power process will not be served. The same is true when decisions are made on a collective basis if the group making the collective decision is so large that the role of each individual is insignificant. It is true that some individuals seem to have little need for autonomy. Either their drive for power is weak, or they satisfy it by identifying themselves as some powerful organization to which they belong. And then... There are unthinking animal types who seem to be satisfied with a purely physical sense of power. The good combat soldier. Who gets his sense of power by developing fighting skills that he is quite content to use in blind obedience to his superiors. But for most people it is through the power process, having a goal, making an autonomous effort in attaining the goal, that self-esteem, self-confidence, and a sense of power are acquired. 
When one does not have adequate opportunity to go through the power process, the consequences are, depending on the individual and on the way the power process is disrupted, boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority, feelings, defeatism, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders, etc. So pretty much saying that we all need that power. We have that power struggle. We need to be in charge of things. And I think the problem that we're running into more and more and why, I mean, you, you sit there, he says it right there. What happens when we don't have the adequate opportunity to go through the power process? The consequences are, once again, boredom, demoralization, low self-esteem, inferiority feelings, defeatism, depression, anxiety, guilt, frustration, hostility, spouse or child abuse, insatiable hedonism, abnormal sexual behavior, sleep disorders, eating disorders. What are we seeing right now through like everything in society? We're hearing all this stuff of society, these problems. We're so overly medicated right now as a society to deal with our emotional issues and our emotional problems right there. It's because we don't have the ability, because we're not allowed to be able to do and be autonomous. I agree with that quite a bit. So, and I see a lot of that. All right, we're going to keep moving. So, sources of social problems. And like I said, a lot of this, remember, this is all written in 1995. 1995. I was still in high school in 1995. That was years ago. We don't want to say how many years ago it was because that makes me feel old. Really old. Not as old as Big D, but old. So, sources of social problems. Any of the foregoing symptoms can occur in any society. But in modern industrial society, they are present on a massive scale. We aren't the first to mention that the world today seems to be going crazy. This sort of thing is not normal for human societies. There is good reason to believe that primitive man suffered from less stress and frustration and was better satisfied with his way of life than modern man. It is true that not all was sweetness and light in primitive societies. Abuse of women was common among the Australian Aborigines. Transsexuality was fairly common among some of the American Indian tribes. But it does appear that, generally speaking, the kinds of problems that we have listed in the preceding paragraph were far less common among primitive peoples than they are in modern society. We attribute the social and psychological problems of modern society to the fact that the society requires people to live under conditions radically different from those under which the human race evolved, and to behave in ways that conflict with the patterns of behavior that the human race developed while living under their earlier conditions. It is clear from what we have already written that we consider lack of opportunity to properly experience the power process as the most important of the abnormal conditions to which modern society subjects people. But it's not the only one. Before dealing with disruption of the power process as a source of social problems, we will discuss some of the other sources. Among the abnormal conditions present in modern industrial society are excessive density of population, isolation of man from nature, excessive rapidity of social change, and the breakdown of natural small-scale communities such as the extended family, the village, or the tribe. And I see that, and I mean, we're going to go more into this here as we go, but 
the one thing that we're seeing more and more is the crowding. Everyone, they're, they're trying to get everybody into centralized areas. We talked about this before, into cities, into everything like that. They keep talking about how we're running out of room. When if you go drive, there's room everywhere. Just everybody wants to be in close and right next to each other. When we don't need to be. And we're losing that sense of, but we're getting closer in proximity, but farther away in our tribes. We're getting less and less. All this social media and everything else is pushing us away from each other and the social norms that we used to have. You know how weird it is now to think about going to the bar and meeting somebody? Now everyone does it on apps. By the time you meet somebody, the first time you meet them in a bar, you know what their favorite sexual position is. When before you just saw someone, they smiled at you, they winked, you went over and talked to them. All those social norms are gone. It's all done for us on a, on a computer. You don't even know who you're really talking to on those computers. It is so odd the way everything's happening. So the way the tribe and the village, we're more intact, more in communication with other human beings and seeing what other human beings are being. But at the same time, we know less. We know more, but we really know less about all the people around us. There's no sense of tribe. There's no sense of the village. There's none of that. I can remember growing up, my neighborhood friends and everyone, and I knew their parents and they knew my parents and all of that. I think like my kids, I met their friends' parents like three times. It's very strange the way things have changed. All right, back to the reading. So page or paragraph 48, it is well known that crowding increases stress and aggression. The degree of crowding that exists today and the isolation of man from nature are consequences of technological process. All pre-industrial societies were predominantly rural. The Industrial Revolution vastly increased the size of cities and the proportion of the population that lives in them. And modern agricultural technology has made it possible for the Earth to support a far denser population than it ever did before. Also, technology exasperates the effects of crowding because it puts increased disruptive powers in people's hands. For example, a variety of noise-making devices, power mowers, radios, motorcycles, etc. If the use of these devices is unrestricted, people who want peace and quiet are frustrated by the noise. If their use is restricted, the people who use the devices are frustrated by the regulations. But if these machines had never been invented, there would have been no conflict and no frustration generated by them. And this is 95, before we had cell phones everybody before everybody had a cell phone i remember in 95 i think i had my first cell phone and if you called me on it someone better have been dead because every phone call was like 10 bucks at least 10 bucks um and so yeah we didn't have all that but we had walkmans we had all that but nowadays it's more and more we have the earpieces where people aren't you know we're not hearing their music, but we're hearing them talk. We're hearing other things. There's more disruptions. We get frustrated because they are not listening to us because they have the earpods in. All of that. So we're seeing this on even a bigger scale than what he was looking in 95. It's getting worse, not better. All right. Uh, continue reading. For primitive societies, the natural world, which usually changes only slowly provided a stable framework and therefore a sense of security. In the modern world, it is human society that dominates nature, 
rather than the other way around. And modern society changes very rapidly owing to technological change. Thus, there is no stable framework. The conservatives are fools. They whine about the decay of traditional values, yet they enthusiastically support technological progress and economic growth. Apparently, it never occurs to them that you can't make rapid, drastic changes in the technological and in the economic economy of a society without causing rapid changes in all other aspects of the society as well, and that such rapid changes inevitably break down traditional values. The breakdown of traditional values, to some extent, implies the breakdown of the bonds that hold together traditional small-scale social groups. The disintegration of small-scale social groups is also promoted by the fact that modern conditions often require or attempt individuals to move to new locations, separating themselves from their communities. Beyond that, a technological society has to weaken family ties and local communities if it is to function efficiently. In modern society, an individual's loyalty must be first to the system and only secondarily to a small-scale community, because if the internal loyalties of small-scale communities were stronger than loyalty to the system, such communities would pursue their own advantage at the expense of the system. Suppose that a public official or a corporation executive appoints his cousin, his friend, or his co-religionist to a position rather than appointing the person best qualified for the job. He has permitted personal loyalty to supersede his loyalty to the system, and that is nepotism, or discrimination, both of which are terrible sins in modern society. Would-be industrial societies that have done a poor job of subordinating personal or local loyalties to loyalty to the system are usually very inefficient. Look at Latin America. That was his words, not mine. Thus, an advanced industrial society can tolerate only those small-scale communities that are emasculated, tamed, and made in the tools of the system. They were his words, but I'm not going to say I disagree with them. But, yeah, it makes sense. But, I mean, how often do we still see that in our society now? How often are we seeing that more now than we even did in 95? Where things, people that are be putting into positions are put there by, you know, a person who chooses nepotism. We saw it quite a bit. We've seen it through pretty much just about every presidency that I can think of in the the last few. So, you know, so Obama, Trump even, Biden, all of them have done that. The nepotism of putting in power the people that they, their, their family, their friends, rather than people that actually would fit and do the job best. So... Back to reading. 53. Uh... Crowding, rapid change, and breakdown of communities have been widely recognized as sources of social problems, but we do not believe they are enough to account for the extent of the problems that are seen today. A few pre-industrial cities were very large and crowded, yet their inhabitants do not seem to have suffered from psychological problems to the same extent as modern man. In America today, there there still are uncrowded rural areas, and we find they're the same problems as in urban areas. Though the problems tend to be less acute in the rural areas, thus crowding does not seem to be the decisive factor. On the growing edge of the American frontier during the 19th century, the mobility of the population probably broke down extended families and small-scale social groups. 
to at least the same extent as these are broken down today. In fact, many nuclear families lived by choice in such isolation, having no neighbors within several miles, that they belong to no community at all, that they do not seem to have deployed problems as a result, or developed problems as a result. Furthermore, change in American frontier society was very rapid and deep. A man might be born and raised in a log cabin outside the reach of law and order and fed largely on wild meat. And by the time he arrived at old age, he might be working at a regular job and living in an ordered community with effective law enforcement. This was a deeper change than that which typically occurs in the life of a modern individual, yet it does not seem to have led to psychological problems. In fact, 19th century American society had an optimistic and self-confident tone, quite unlike that of today's society. The difference, we argue, is that modern man has the sense, largely justified, that change is imposed on him, whereas a 19th century frontiersman had the sense, also largely justified, that he created change himself by his own choice. Thus, the pioneer settled on a piece of land of his own choosing and made it into a farm through his own efforts. In those days, an entire country, county, sorry, might have only a couple of hundred inhabitants, and it was a far more isolated and autonomous entity, entity than a modern county. Hence, the pioneer farmer participating as a member of a relatively small group in the creation of a new ordered community. One may well question whether the creation of this community was an improvement, but at any rate, it satisfied the pioneer's need to the power process. It would be possible to give other examples of societies in which there has been rapid change and or lack of close community ties without the kind of massive behavioral aberration that is seen in today's industrial society. We contend that the most important cause of social and psychological problems in modern society is the fact that people have insufficient opportunity to go through the power process in a normal way. We don't mean to say that modern society is the only one in which the power process has been disrupted. Probably most, if not all, civilized societies have interfered with the power process to a greater or less extent. But in modern industrial society, the problem has become particularly acute. Leftism, at least in its recent mid to late 20th century form, is in part a symptom of deprivation with respect to the power process. So kind of there he's going through and talking about how there was huge changes, you know, in the, the early 1900s and the late, you know, 19th century um, for the frontier life. But we didn't see the huge psychological issues that we're seeing now. Why is that? Is that because of the technology we have now? And I think in a lot of ways it is. Because before, we had to be autonomous. We had to be able to live on our own. We had to be able to do our own thing. Now, through Facebook, through social media, through everything else, I don't have to be autonomous. I can get help. I can have people help me. I can see GoFundMes for people to get boob jobs. Really? We didn't ask for help. Mankind did not ask for help in the 1900s unless we needed it. Most people in the 1900s would die before they asked for help. And nowadays, it's expected. It's expected that if I needed help, if I felt that I needed help because of my own laziness, it's expected that somebody will send me money and pay for it. 
that I think is part of the biggest downfall that we're seeing in our society where it used to be that people could survive on their own we could do our own it's like a friend and I talked this weekend if it wasn't for most people nowadays if I handed most people a map a book a map book a Thomas guide which if you don't know what that is you're too young if I handed most people now a Thomas guide and said okay find your way here with nothing but this Thomas guide, they couldn't do it. And that is sad. And I think that's where a lot of us are coming into a problem. We don't do anything for ourselves anymore. People do it for us. We can get help. We can get people to do things. We don't learn do anything on our own. Most people nowadays don't even know how to change their own oil or change a tire. Because somebody will do it for us. I can call AAA and they'll come do it for me. Why do I need to know how to do this? Ridiculous. Alright. I'll get off my, my, my soapbox there and continue reading. So we're up to chapter 59. So disruption of the power process in modern society. So we divide human drives into three groups. Those drives that can be satisfied with minimal effort. Two, those that can be satisfied but only at the cost of serious effort. Or three, those that cannot be adequately satisfied no matter how much effort one makes. The power process is the process of satisfying the drives of the second group. The more drives there are in the third group, the more there's frustration, anger, eventually defeatism, depression, etc. In modern society, Industrial society, natural human drives tend to be pushed into the first and third groups, and the second group tends to consist increasingly of artificially created drives. In primitive societies, physical necessities generally fall into group two. They can be obtained, but only at the cost of serious effort. But modern society tends to guarantee the physical necessities to everyone. In exchange for only minimal effort, hence physical needs are pushed into group 1. There may be disagreement about whether the effort made needed to hold the job is minimal, but usually in lower to middle level jobs. Um, effort, uh, whatever effort is required is merely that of obedience. You sit or stand where you are told to sit or stand and do what you are told to do in the way you are told to do it. Seldom do you have to exert yourself seriously, and in any case, you have hardly any autonomy in work so that the need for the power process is not well served. Social needs such as sex, love, and status often remain in group two in modern society, depending on the situation of the individual. But except for people who have a particularly strong drive for status, the effort required to fulfill the social drives is insufficient to satisfy adequately the need for the power process. So certain artificial needs have been created that fall into group two, hence, ser uh, hence serve the need for the power process. Advertising and marketing techniques have been developed to make many people feel they need things that their grandparents never desired or even dreamed of. It requires serious effort to earn money, to satisfy these artificial needs, hence they fall into group two. Modern man must satisfy his need for the power process largely through pursuit of the artificial needs created by the advertising and marketing industry and through surrogate activities. And this is one where we go back to an episode where propaganda. 
If you really want to know about the advertising and marketing, go back and listen to our propaganda episode. That's what he's talking about here. They create artificial needs that nobody really needs. That nobody, that, that aren't real. It's like the thing that we've always talked about, you know, in the propaganda episode that, you know, breakfast is the most important meal of the day. No, it's not. We only believe that because some marketing exec 70 years ago, actually far than that, I think, basically told us that it's supposed to be the most important meal of the day and they've stuck with it. Um, all right, back to reading. It seems that for many people, maybe the majority, these artificial forms of the power process are insufficient. A theme that appears repeatedly in the writings of the social critics of the second half of the 20th century is a sense of purposelessness that affects many people in modern society. This purposelessness is often called by other names such as anomic or middle class vacuity. We suggest that the so-called identity crisis is actually a search for a sense of purpose, often for commitment to a suitable surrogate activity. It may be that existentialism is in large part a response to the purposelessness of modern life. Very widespread in modern society is a search for fulfillment, but we think that for the majority of people, an activity whose main goal is fulfillment, that is, a surrogate activity, does not bring completely satisfactory fulfillment. In other words, it does not fully satisfy the need for the power process. That need can be fully satisfied only through activities that have some external goal, such as physical necessities, sex, love, status, revenge, etc. Moreover, where goals are pursued through earning money, climbing the status ladder, or functioning as part of the system, in some other way, most people are not in a position to pursue their goals autonomously. Most workers are someone else's employee and, as we pointed out in paragraph 61, most spend their days doing what they are told to do in the way that they are told to do it. Even people who are in business for themselves have only limited autonomy. It is a chronic complaint of small business persons and entrepreneurs that their hands are tied by excessive government regulation. Some of these regulations are doubtless unnecessary, but for the most part, government regulations are essential and inevitable parts of our extremely complex society. A large portion of small business today operates on the franchise system. It was reported in the Wall Street Journal a few years ago that many of the franchise-granting companies require applicants for franchises to take a personality test that is designed to exclude those who have creativity and initiative because such persons are not sufficiently docile to go along obediently with the franchise system. This excludes from small business many of the people who most need autonomy. Very interesting that the idea of personality test to see, you know, how you would react to certain things and what kind of act personality you would have. And if you're too creative, which makes sense, there's a lot of companies who say they want creativity in their company, but only creativity that they control. Okay, back to the reading. Today, people live more by virtue of what the system does for them or to them than by virtue of what they do for themselves. And what they do for themselves is done more and more along channels laid down by the system. Opportunities tend to be those that the system provides. The opportunities must be exploited in accordance with rules and regulations and techniques prescribed by experts must be followed if there is to be a chance of success. Thus the power process is disrupted in our society through a deficiency of real goals and a deficiency of autonomy. 
in the pursuit of goals, but is also disrupted because of those human drives that fall into group three. The drives that one cannot adequately satisfy no matter how much effort one makes. One of these drives is the, drives is the need for security. Our lives depend on decisions made by other people. We have no control over those decisions, and usually we do not even know the people who make them. We live in a world in which relatively few people, maybe 500 or 1,000, make the important decisions. Philip B. Hyman of Harvard Law School, quoted by Anthony Lewis, New York Times, April 21st, 1995. And that was that quote that I just read. We live in a world in which relatively few people, maybe 500 or 1,000, make the important decisions. This goes back once again to what we have talked about. Um, that there is, you know, many of us believe a secret society running all of this and making the decisions for us. Our lives depend on whether safety standards at a nuclear power plant are properly maintained. On how much pesticide is allowed to get into our food or how much pollution into our air on how skillful and incompetent our doctor is. Whether we lose or get a job may depend on decisions made by government economists or corporation executives, and so forth. Most individuals are not in a position to secure themselves against these threats to more than a very limited extent. The individual's search for security is therefore frustrated, which leads to a sense of powerlessness. It may be objected that primitive man is physically less secure than a model, modern man, as is shown by a shorter life expectancy. Hence, modern man suffers from less, not more, than the amount of insecurity that is normal for human beings. But psychological security does not close, closely correspond with physical security. What makes us feel secure is not so much objective security as a sense of confidence in our ability to take care of ourselves. Primitive, primitive man threatened by a fierce animal or by hunger, can fight in self-defense or travel in search of food. He has no certainty of success in these efforts, but he is by no means helpless against the things that threaten him. The modern individual, on the other hand, is threatened by many things against which he is helpless. Nuclear attacks, carcinogens in food, environmental pollution, war, increasing taxes, invasion of his privacy by large organizations, nationwide social and economic phenomena that may disrupt his way of life. And this is so true. I mean, it's one of those things we have a lot in our lives that we have no control over that affects us. I think just the last few years with COVID and the lockdowns and all of a sudden we, we had a shortage of things. I mean, hell, we couldn't get toilet paper for months. Good thing I have a bidet. All right, um, on to 69. It is true that primitive man is powerless against some of the things that threaten him, disease for example, but he can accept the risk of disease stoically. It is part of the nature of things. It is no one's fault, unless it is the fault of some imaginary, impersonal demon. But threats to the modern individual tend to be man-made. They are not the results of chance, but are imposed on him by other persons whose decision he, as an individual, is unable to influence. Consequently, he feels frustrated, humiliated, and angry. Thus, primitive man, for the most part, has his security in his own hands, either as an individual or as a member of a small group. Whereas the security of modern man is in the hands of persons or organizations that are too remote or too large for him to be able to personally uh, influence them. So modern man's drive for security tends to fall into groups one and three. In some areas, food, shelter, etc., security is assured at the cost of only trivial effort. Whereas in other areas, he cannot attain security. 
The foregoing great simple, greatly simplifies the real situation, but it does not indicate in a rough, general way how the condition of modern man differs from that of a primitive man. People have many transitory derives or impulses that are necessarily frustrated in modern life, hence fall into group three. One may become angry, but modern society cannot permit fighting. In many situations, it does not even permit verbal aggression. When going somewhere, one may be in a hurry or one may be in a mood to travel slowly, but one generally has no choice but to move with the flow of traffic and obey the traffic signals. One may want to do one's work in a different way, but usually one can work only according to the rules laid down by one's employers. In many other ways as well, modern man is strapped down by a network of rules and regulations, explicit or implicit that frustrate many of his impulses and thus interfere with the power process. Most of these regulations cannot be dispensed with because they are necessary for the functioning of industrial society. Modern society is in certain aspects extremely permissive in matters that are irrelevant to the functioning of the system. We can generally do what we please. We can believe in any religion we like as long as it does not encourage behavior that is dangerous to the system. We can go to bed with anyone we like as long as we practice safe sex. We can do anything we like as long as it is unimportant, but in all important matters, the system tends to increasingly to regulate our behavior. Sound familiar? Sound what we're like where we're getting to now? Chapter 73. Behavior is regulated not only through explicit rules and not only by their government. Controls often exercised through indirect coercion or through psychological pressure or manipulation and by organizations other than the government or by the system as a whole. Most large organizations use some form of propaganda to manipulate public attitudes or behavior. Propaganda is not limited to commercials and advertisements and sometimes not even consciously intended as propaganda by the people who make it. For instance, the content of entertainment programming is a powerful form of propaganda. An example of indirect coercion, there is no law that says we have to go to work every day and follow our employer's orders. Legally, there is nothing to prevent us from going to live in the wild like primitive people or from going into business for ourselves. But in practice, there is very little wild country left, and there is room in the economy for only a limited number of small business owners. Hence, most of us can survive only as someone else's employee. We suggest that modern man's obsession with longevity and with maintaining physical vigor and sexual attractiveness to an advanced age is a symptom of unfulfillment resulting from deprivation with respect to the power process. The midlife crisis also is such a symptom. So is the lack of interest in having children that is fairly common in modern society but almost unheard of in primitive societies. In primitive societies, life is a succession of stages. The needs and purposes of one stage have been fulfilled. There is no particular reluctance about passing on to the next stage. A young man goes through the power process by becoming a hunter, hunting not for sport or for fulfillment, but to get meat that is necessary for food. In young women, the process is more complex with greater emphasis on social power. We won't discuss that here. This phase, having been successfully passed through, the young man has no reluctance about settling down to the responsibilities of raising a family. In contrast, some modern people indefinitely postpone having children because they are too busy seeking some kind of fulfillment. We suggest that the fulfillment they need is adequate experience of the power process, with real goals instead of the artificial goals of surrogate activities. 
again having successfully raised his children, going through the power process by providing them with the physical necessities, the primitive man feels that his work is done and is prepared to accept old age, if he survives that long, and death. Many modern people, on the other hand, are disturbed by the power of physical deterioration and death, as is shown by the amount of effort they expend trying to maintain their physical condition. Appearance and health. We argue that this is due to unfulfillment resulting from the fact that they have never put their physical powers to any practical use. Have never gone through the power process using their bodies in a serious way. It is not the primitive man who has used his body daily for practical purpose. He fears the who fears the deterioration of age. But the modern man who has never had a practical use for his body beyond walking from his car to his house. It is the man whose need for the power process has been satisfied during his life who is best prepared to accept the end of that life. In response to the arguments of this section, someone will say, society must find a way to give people the opportunity to go through the power process. For such people, the value of the opportunity is destroyed by the very fact that society gives it to them. What they need is to find or make their own opportunities. As long as the system gives them their opportunities, it still has them on a leash. To attain autonomy, they must get off that leash. Very powerful, very, very true, very, very much hits home, especially nowadays. I mean, how much are we leashed to our technology? How much do we, are we stuck with this? How much do people rely on their f cell phones, their Facebook, their Instagram, their whatever hell that we've got now? All of these, that we rely on these, that we're stuck on these. That those are our way to see people. And how much is a hit here where, you know, everything, you know, society gives us these opportunities. No, we should take these opportunities. And I think that's the biggest thing now. People will only, they want to t be given everything. We're not taking things anymore. And I'm not saying stealing. I'm not saying anything like that. Like go up and take things from your neighbor. I'm taking take initiative and do for you, do for your family. Earn. Work. Do what we're supposed to be doing. Not being expected to have everything handed to us. Alright, I'm going to continue on for a little bit longer. So, chapter 77, how some people adjust. So, not everyone in industrial technological society suffers from psychological problems. Some people even profess to be quite satisfied with society as it is. We now discuss some of the reasons why people differ so greatly in their response to modern society. First... There doubtless are differences in the strength of the drive for power. Individuals with a weak drive for power may have relatively little need to go through the power process, or at least relatively little need for autonomy in the power process. These are docile types who would have been happy as plantation darkies in the Old South. And this is in quotations. We don't mean to sneer at the plantation darkies of the Old South. To their credit, most of the slaves were not content with their servitude. We do sneer at people who are content with servitude. Chapter 
chapter 79. Some people may have some exceptional drive and pursue pursuing which they satisfy their need for the power process. For example, those who have an unusually strong drive for social status may spend their whole lives climbing the status ladder without ever getting bored with that game. People vary in their susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques. Some are so susceptible that, even if they make a great deal of money, they cannot satisfy their constant craving for their shiny new toys that the marketing industry dangles before their eyes. So they always feel hard-pressed financially, even if their income is large and their cravings are frustrated. How many times do we see that where someone, the more they earn, the more toys they got to get and the more broke they are? Uh, 81. Some people have low susceptibility to advertising marketing techniques. These are the people who aren't interested in money. Material acquisition does not serve their need for their power process. People who have medium susceptibility to advertising and marketing techniques are able to earn enough money to satisfy their craving for goods and services, but only at the cost of serious effort. Putting in overtime, taking a second job, earning promotions. Um, thus, material acquisition serves their need for the power process, but it does not necessarily follow, the, follow that their need is fully satisfied. They may have insufficient autonomy in the power process. Their work may consist of following orders, and some of their drives may be frustrated, e.g. security aggression. We are guilty of oversimplification in paragraphs 80 through 82 because we have assumed that the desire for material acquisition is, is entirely a creation of the advertising and marketing industry. Of course, it is not that simple. Which he's got a point there. It's kind of one of those things, a lot of things, if you really look back in, in time, I mean, there's always been people, you know, kings, stuff like that, where they would try and just have way more than they need. But for the most part, most society was okay with what they had. It's like one of those things, I keep seeing this as a meme on LinkedIn and a, a few other things. Where they talk about how, you know, a, a capitalist comes across a fisherman. And, you know, who's just sitting on the, the, the bank of the river fishing and says, hey, if we do this, this, then this, we can make you more money. And then you can hire more fishermen and you can have a company and you can do all this. And the fisherman's like, to earn what? He's like, so that someday you can retire and relax. And the fisherman looks at him and like, that's what I have now. And I think that's one of the biggest problems. We try so hard to get all this money and wealth and everything else to a point that we can relax later in life where we can relax right now if we just take less stuff and have less needs um, and I think that's a lot of what he's you know alluding to here we try so hard to have so much that I, in a lot of ways it's destroying us so alright chapter 83 some people partly satisfy their need for power by identifying themselves with a powerful organization or mass movement. An individual lacking goals or power joins a movement or an organization, adopts its goals as his own, then works towards those goals. When some of the goals are attained, the individual, even though his personal efforts had played only an insignificant part in this attainment of the goals, feels through his identification with the movement or organization as if he had gone through the power process. This phenomenon was exploited by the fascists, Nazis, and communists. Our society uses it too, though less crudely. Example, Manuel Noriega was an irritant to the U.S. Goal, punish Noriega. 
The U.S. invaded Panama effort and punished Noriega, attainment of gold. Thus, the U.S. went through the power process and many Americans, because of their identification with the U.S., experienced the power process vicariously. Hence the widespread public approval of the Panama invasion. It gave people a sense of power. We see the same phenomenon in armies, corporations, political parties, humanitarian organizations, religions, or ideological movements. In particular, leftist movements tend to attract people who are seeking to satisfy their need for power. But for most people, identification with a large organization or a mass movement does not fully satisfy the need for power. When have we seen that? Mm, I don't know, recently, BLM, for one example. Um... Paragraph 84. Another way in which people satisfy their need for the power process is through surrogate activities. As we explain in paragraphs 38 to 40, a surrogate activity is an activity that is directed toward an artificial goal that the individual pursues for the sake of the fulfillment that he gets from pursuing the goal, not because he needs to attain the goal itself. For instance, there is no practical motive for building enormous muscles, hitting a little ball into a hole, or acquiring a complete series of postage stamps. Yet many people in our society devote themselves with passion to bodybuilding, golf, or stamp collecting. Some people are more other-directed than others, and therefore will more readily attach importance to a surrogate activity simply because the people around them treat it as important or because society tells them it is important. That is why some people get very serious about essentially trivial activities, such as sports, or bridge, or chess, or arcane scholarly pursuits, whereas others who are more clearly sighted, never see these things as anything but the surrogate activities that they are, and consequently never attach enough importance to them to satisfy their need for the power process in that way. It only remains to point out that in many cases, a person's way of earning a living is also a surrogate activity. Not a pure surrogate activity, since part of the motive for the activity is to gain the physical necessities, and for some people, social status, and the luxuries that advertising makes them want. But many people put into their work far more effort than is necessary to earn whatever money and status they require. And this extra effort constitutes a surrogate activity. This extra effort, together with the emotional investment that accompanies it, is one of the most potent forces acting toward the continual development and perfecting of the system, with negative consequences for individual freedom, especially for the most creative scientists and engineers. Work towards tends to be largely a surrogate activity. This point is so important that it deserves a separate discussion, which we shall give in a moment. In this section, we have explained how many people in modern society do satisfy many people in modern society do satisfy their need for their power process to a greater or lesser extent. But we think that for the majority of people, the need for the power process is not fully satisfied in the first place. Those who have insatiable drives for status or who get firmly hooked on a surrogate activity or or who identify strongly enough with a movement or organization to satisfy the need for power in that way, or exceptional personalities. Others are not fully satisfied with surrogate activities or by the identification with an organization. In the second place, too much control is imposed by the system through explicit regulation or through socialization, which results in a deficiency of autonomy and in frustration due to the impossibility of attaining certain goals and the necessity of restraining too many impulses. But even if most people in industrial technological society were well satisfied, we, FC, would still be opposed to that form of society because, among other reasons, 
We consider it demeaning to fulfill one's need for the power process through surrogate activities or through identification with an organization rather than pursuit of real goals. All right, I'll read a couple more and then I'm gonna, I'll give my kind of closings on the where we're at. So 87, the motives of scientists. Science, science and technology provide the most important example of surrogate activities. Some scientists claim that they are motivated by, the, by curiosity or by desire to benefit humanity. But it is easy to see that neither of these can be the principal motive of most scientists. As for curiosity, the notion is simply absurd. Most scientists work on highly specialized problems that are not the object of any normal curiosity. For example, is an astronomer, a mathematician, or an entomologist curious about the properties of isopropylthalamine? I can't even pronounce that. Of course not. Only a chemist is curious about such a thing, and he is curious about it only because chemistry is his surrogate activity. Is the chemist curious about the appropriate classification of a new species of beetle? No. That question is of interest only to the entomologist. And he is interested in it only because entomology is his surrogate activity. If the chemist and the entomologist had to extend, exert themselves seriously to, to obtain the physical necessities, and if that effort exercised their abilities in an interesting way but in some non-scientific pursuit, then they wouldn't give a damn about isopropylthalamethane or the classification of beetles. Suppose the lack of funds for postgraduate education had led the chemist to become an insurance broker instead of a chemist. In that case, he would have been very interested in insurance matters, but would have cared nothing about isopropyl trimethyl methane. I think I got it right that time. In any case, it is not normal to put into the satisfaction of mere curiosity the amount of time and effort that scientists put into their work. The curiosity explanation of the scientist's motive just doesn't stand up. The benefit of humanity explanation doesn't work any better. Some scientific work has no conceivable relation to the welfare of the human race. Most archaeology or comparative linguistics, for example, some other areas of science present obviously dangerous possibilities. Yet scientists in these areas are just as enthusiastic about their work as those who develop vaccines or study air pollution. Consider the case of Dr. Edward Teller, who had an obvious emotional involvement in promoting nuclear power plants. Didn't this involvement stem from a desire to benefit humanity? If so, then why didn't Dr. Teller get emotional about other humanitarian causes? If he was such a humanitarian, then why did he help to develop the H-bomb? As with many other scientific achievements, it is very much open to question whether nuclear power plants actually do benefit humanity. Does the cheap electricity outweigh the accumulating waste and the risk of accidents? Dr. Teller saw only one side of the question. Clearly, his emotional involvement with nuclear power arose not from a desire to benefit humanity, but from a personal fulfillment he got from his work and from seeing it put to practical use. The same is true of scientists generally, with possible rare exceptions. Their motive is neither curiosity nor a desire to benefit humanity, but the need to go through the power process, to have a goal, a scientific problem to solve, to make an effort, research, and to attain the goal, solution of the problem. Science is a surrogate activity because scientists work mainly for the fulfillment they get out of the work itself. 
Of course, it's not that simple. Other motives do play a role for many scientists. Money and status, for example. Some scientists may be persons of the type who have an insatiable drive for status. And this may provide much of the motivation for their work. No doubt the majority of scientists, like the majority of the general population, are more or less susceptible to advertising and marketing techniques and need money to satisfy their craving for goods and services. Thus, science is not a pure surrogate activity, but is in large part a surrogate activity. Also, science and technology constitute a power mass movement, and many scientists gratify their need for power through identifications with the mass movement. Thus, science marches on blindly. Without regard to the real welfare of the human race or to go to any other standard obedient only to the psychological needs of the scientists and of the government officials and corporation executives who provide the funds for research. Once again, very interesting. Very interesting idea of to think that a lot of things that we have now, scientific achievements, everything else, are surrogate activities that we do just because we want the power. We want the 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 notoriety that is so true about society how many things can you think of um, with people influencers influencers are the exact what he's def the defining here they do nothing and get everything everything is handed to them they have no idea what real work is they don't have to do any research. Research. They have to just influence whatever the fuck that means. The more and more I read this, the more and more I, I, I agree with him. I mean, he says a few things that are questionable. I mean, you know, the, the whole Darkies comment probably wasn't that good of one. But like I said in the last episode, I'm going to read it as written. So there's going to be a couple things in here that some people might find, you know, offensive, racist, whatever. Um, but this is, I'm reading it as he says it. I'm not saying I agree with what he's saying. I'm just reading it as he, as he wrote it. So I'm going to leave you guys on that one. Think about some of the stuff that we said. Like I said, if you want me to keep going, I will. Um, the, the, if I keep going at this rate, we, there's at least two more episodes of this. Um, I'm enjoying it. I'm learning a lot doing this. So, thank you all for listening. Um, I hope you enjoyed it. If you want to hear more, let me know. If I'm if you're if I'm if I'm getting to you and you're done with this, just let me know and we can stop and I can you know move on to something else. But I'm I'm enjoying this. I'm learning a lot about what he thought. Um, like I said, he did a lot of things that were wrong. Yes, blowing up people, killing people. No, not a good thing. Don't do that. Bad. But. He's making some good points in this manifesto. Points that none of us ever would have seen. I find that interesting. Let me know your thoughts. Thank you all. And we will talk to you later.